Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. This is podcast number 215, and I am your host, Karen Litzy. And in today's episode, I was honored and thrilled to sit down with Dr. Tim Gabbett. Uh, if you're not familiar with Dr. Tim Gabbett, he holds a PhD in human physiology and has completed a second PhD in the applied science of professional football uh, with special reference to physical demands, injury prevention, and skill acquisition. He has worked with elite international athletes, I mean, all over the world, including my Philadelphia Eagles. Thank you, Tim. Um, he's published over 200 peer review articles, has presented at over 200 national and international conferences. He's also been on a ton of podcasts. He's been on BJSM a couple of times. I highly recommend you head over there and listen to those podcasts as well. And if you want to find out more about him, you can go to his website, which is gabbettperformance.com.eu. And in today's episode, we talk about, we kind of go off one of the papers that he wrote, which, you know, I have in the, the notes section. So if you want to grab that paper, you can, or you can also grab it at his website, Gabbett Performance. Um, and today, what we really talked about was in this podcast, sports-specific external and internal training loads, uh, the difference between chronic training and acute training, and how those training principles and timelines can affect your performance in a game, uh, the mathematical relationship between fitness and fatigue uh, on physical performance, why building trust with athletes is so important. I say, feel like we say that all the time here on the show, is building trust and that therapeutic relationship and why it's so important. And, and much, much, much more. Um, he's, he's just got a great philosophy. He uh, can explain very complex things in a way that everybody can understand, which is why I'm really excited about this episode, because a lot of times, uh, sometimes the episodes uh, are a bit more technical. This is not. Everyone can... I think, get it and understand. And again, if you want more information, head over to gabbertperformance.com.au. And before we get to today's episode, I also want to thank audible.com for sponsoring the episode. So if you love to listen to books like I do, then head over to audibletrial.healthywealthysmart.com and you'll get one free month and one free download as a thank you for my listeners from Audible. They have over 180,000 books to choose from. Uh, right now I'm reading the new Charles Duhigg book. He wrote uh, The Power of Habit, and his new book is just as great. Um, so if you love to listen, you got a long commute to work, you're like me, walking around for miles and miles a day. It's what I do. It's how I keep up. So head over to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart for your free month and free download. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, everybody, please enjoy this wonderful interview with Dr. Tim Gabbett. Hey, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and welcome. Thanks, Karen. Really great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and... Just so I gave a little in intro of you, uh, obviously in the intro to the podcast, but if you wouldn't mind uh, just giving, talking a little bit about yourself so that the listeners have a, a, a better idea of where, kind of, of where you're coming from, um, that would be great. So a little bit more background on you. 
Sure. Um, look, I'm, a, I'm an applied sports scientist. So, so basically um, what that means is I, I work with coaches and I work with athletes on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's, it's the part of my life where I feel probably the most free, where I'm actually in the field. Um, and, and basically um, I probably work across a few different areas. I, I work in a, in a skill acquisition Role for some coaches. I work in strength and conditioning areas and and um, and workload monitoring in other areas, um, but or for other coaches. But essentially, what what my job is is to to try and help help the athletes um, perform at the the best level they can possibly do. And so you're working with everyone from let's say the sports teams, medical, the physicians, the physiotherapists, the strength and conditioning coaches, the coaches, and right down to the athletes. So kind of the whole spectrum of what could be involved in a team. Is that correct? Yeah, to, to varying to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. That's that's right. I'll, I'll work with, with a head coach and, and the assistant coaches on different areas. It, it could be some game analysis areas. Um, I'll work with with um, the physiotherapy and, and athletic training staff to, to try and bring bring athletes back to to a functional level of fitness um, following injury. I'll, I'll work with strength and conditioning staff to, to make sure that um, players are, or our athletes are uh, are able to hit the the worst case scenarios that they're they're likely to face during competition and, and make sure that they can perform them and, and tolerate those activities and then. Working directly with with players, either one on one or in um, in small groups, um, I'll work with the players as well. And is all of this work is I obviously like ideally to like you said prepare them for high level competition, um, but is it also to help decrease the risk of injury? Because I don't want to say prevent injury. Because that's kind of a sticky topic to say, oh, do A, B, C, and D, and you'll prevent injury. But, but is part of this job to lower the risk of injury? Yeah, look, I, I think um, first and foremost, I, I work with, with players to try and to make sure that they're prepared for whatever the competition that they're preparing for. So that involves... Um, looking at the, the physical demands of that competition, including the, the most extreme passages of play and making sure that they're prepared for that. Um, and we look at that from a performance point of view because a lot of those extreme passages of play um, are, are the periods that um, are critical periods within a game. So they're either when, when goals are scored or goals are conceded or, or when points are scored or conceded. So um, from a performance point of view, your ability to perform those worst-case scenarios are really important. But it it also um, makes sense that if you can't perform those um, physically demanding activities, those really high-end activities, that you put yourself at at risk of injury. So so a big part of of my role is is identifying what those worst-case scenarios look like and making sure that that players are prepared for that. Okay, so now let's get then into making sure the players are prepared for that. So looking at the workload, looking at everything from their training to whether it be 
the long-term training, the short-term training, year-round, um, and a lot of this, so just so people know, uh, Tim uh, is the author of obviously many publications, but one uh, that was more recent in BJSM, which is the training injury prevention paradox, should athletes be training smarter and harder? Because, you know, we always hear the smarter, not harder. Um, so let's talk about training. Like you said, you're, you want to train your athletes for, I think you want to train them for fitness, but then you want to train them for these worst case scenarios. So first of all, how are you even measuring training, measuring training loads so that you can, because things have to be measurable. So how do you do that? Look, there's a couple of ways that we can we can measure training load. We can we can measure um, external training loads, which which are which are typically um, the the distance that a player runs, or the weight that they lift, or the number of collisions that they have in in training, or the jumps that they do. Um, and then we can also measure the internal training loads and essentially this is the response to the external work that players perform. So things like um, heart rate is a measure of internal training load or session RPE is a, is a measure of internal training load. Um, typically what, what we're able to do now, in, in the old days we used to follow players with, with cameras. So we would, we would sit in a stand and we would track an individual player. So if, if you were playing a soccer game, we would I would sit in a sit in a stand with a camera and just follow you around. Um, you would you would be within a ten meter radius. So we and we then we would go back to the um, to the office and we would log the amount of time that you spent in competition, standing, walking, jogging, striding, and sprinting. So for, for every 10 minutes of game time, it used to take us around about half an hour to analyze. So that's for, for a 90-minute soccer game, four and a half hours per player. Um, so you can imagine when, when GPS technology came along and we could track multiple players at the one time and we can, we can track them all in real time, it became very attractive to us. Um, so now we can we can look at the demands of the ex external demands of competition using GPS technology, where I can pretty much in real time I can tell you um, how far a player has run, how much high intensity work they've done, how many repeated efforts they've done, and and from that we can we can get an idea of the the average intensity of the game, but we can also find out what the worst case scenario the worst case scenarios of that, that competition are as well, the most demanding passages of play. Yeah, and I would also think that you can get more accurate internal training loads as well because you can get immediate heart rate uh, measurements and obviously RPE, I mean that's a, obviously a, more of an objective from the player, but you can get those immediate heart rate as well. So has that also helped uh, when you're evaluating and analyzing these players yeah well we've been able to get um, heart rate for a lot longer mm -hmm. than we have have GPS um, so we've probably had that technology for a lot longer um, but but yeah when we when we program we will use both we will use both external loads and and internal loads as well 
And what about, so you sort of have these athletes as you're watching them in practices and games, and how are you also monitoring just their overall fitness, overall well-being, right? Because there's got to be some moderating variables there that can affect how you're going to approach an individual. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. Uh, in terms of in terms of fitness, there's there's some minimum standards that that we need our players to achieve. So we will have some some tests of of physical qualities that that we believe are important to performance. Now these are these are different from the tests that we might use for general well-being. So we might have some different um, fitness tests or performance tests that that look at well-being of the player and if we have a a, a soccer player um, we might do something like a, a lower body test of of fatigue and we might do some sort of submaximal test um, that looks at um, heart rate recovery um, and we also generally from a well-being point of view typically what what a, a large number of teams will, will do is use some sort of well-being scale. So they'll ask ask players to to rate how they feel on a on a score of one to five or one to seven or one to ten. One being really poor, ten being I've never felt better. On a number of um, typical questions would be things like soreness, um, mood, stress, and and mm-hmm. sleep. Those sort of those sort of questions to to try and um, Get a handle on on how their their um, perceived recovery is, or how how they're feeling psychologically, um, and how they're feeling mentally. Are they feeling mentally recovered for the next session? And okay, so you have these sort of internal external measures, measures of well being and and fitness, depending on the athlete that you're working with. So. How do you, so you've analyzed the athlete? So where does this injury prediction come in? And and then once they're analyzed, how do you then progress through your workload and through your training? Can you if you can kind of take us through your kind of mental process of how you would do this? Yeah, the first the first thing. Um... Um, to, to keep in mind with with injury prediction is is I think I think some some groups um, misinterpret or, or probably oversell what injury prediction is and and if if someone tells you that they can um, predict injuries ninety percent of the time based on a whole heap of variables and and they get it ninety percent right or ninety five percent right ninety percent of the time. Then the first thing you should be asking is, well, can you show me the evidence? Um, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of organisations out there that will that will try and um, that will try and prey on um, uh, potentially in, insecure environments um, or prey on environments where they, they feel they can actually make a quick buck. Um, in terms of injury prediction. All we're talking about is the first thing we need to do is establish that there's an association or a relationship between whatever our variables are and whatever our outcome variable is. So if we're looking at um, training load as a potential predictor of injury, 
then we first need to identify the relationship between load and the outcome variable. And for us, it's always been injury, but some people might like to know, is there a relationship between load and illness? For us, it's been load and injury. So in some of our early work, we were able to show that there was a relationship between load and injury. And then we just took that information and we said, well, if there's, if there's a relationship between load and injury, can we actually use load information a little bit smarter to try and um, reduce our, our um, non-contact soft tissue injury rates. So um, when we're talking about prediction, we're not talking about a, a, a looking into a, a crystal ball and saying you're about to get injured. We're, we're, we're basing it on probabilities. So this is our relationship between load and injury and based on this relationship, this is the probability that you will be injured at, at this point in time with this given load. Um, and, and keep in mind too that whenever you have a probability, if you have a 50% likelihood of a player sustaining an injury, so, so you might take that to a coach and say, look, this player is 50% chance of breaking down, then the first question the coach should say is, well, doesn't that mean that they're 50% chance of not breaking down? So you may as well just give me a, a coin to toss and um, if it's heads, he's going to break down, tails, he's not. So that's the kind of thing that you need to keep in mind. And, and the other thing too is that um, probability is, a, is, a, is an estimate of risk. So, and, and risk doesn't equal rate. So just because there's a, a risk of injury doesn't necessarily mean that um, a player is definitely going to break down. In, in terms of using some of this information, um, it, it's, we, look at, we look at players, um, we look at their, their chronic training load history and we look at what they need to be able to do um, on a weekly basis when they have to compete. So if a player is, is well below the, the kind of loads that we require for them to be able to compete and to be able to compete successfully, then um, it's it's our our model is is based around not only um, not only reducing loads, it's about building loads where it's necessary. So so a lot of the time, um, we know that high chronic loads are actually protective against injuries, and we know that high chronic loads actually give you the physical qualities that allow you to compete. So much of much of our, our training recommendations is, is making sure that we get players safely to high chronic chronic training loads so that they're able to compete for in those um, really um, extreme demands that they face in competition but also to make sure that um, they've developed enough load or generated enough chronic load that actually um, sets them up to stay injury free. Um, there, there will be occasions where players will need a rest and we need to back back away from load. But in my experience in, in team sport competition, it, it's it's more common for players to be to be undertrained than it is to be overtrained. I, I've never seen um, an overtrained team sport athlete. Um, I see it quite a fair bit in individual sports though. And what what is considered chronic training? Is there a time frame to that? And and what is is there an equation to work out what is you know what is an optimal uh, high chronic training load or even an acute chronic training load? But first, let's kind of define what is 
considered chronic training? Is it two weeks, three weeks, six months? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good All question too. Look, well, potentially, yeah. yeah. Um, if if you're if you're dealing with a um, a marathon runner or a, um, a a triathlete where um, where they they're really working at the the top end of their their fitness and that the the room for improvement is quite small, then it may be that the the chronic load to produce adaptation may have to be a little bit longer. So it may be that your chronic loading period for a triathlete may be three months. So a 12-week period of solid training is required to induce really small changes in, in physicality. Um, it, it, we typically use a four-week rolling average chronic load, so 28 days. But um, that that's based on, in, in Australia, our, our mesocycles tend to be around about four weeks in duration. We tend to have three weeks hard, one week easy. But in different sports, um, for the different analyses we've done, we would say that different sports may require different acute and chronic loading periods. So the chronic loading period for a... a, a football player in the English Premier League is going to be different from the chronic loading period for, say, a, an ultra-endurance athlete. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's really sport-athlete dependent. Absolutely. As far as it, you know, talking about an ultra-athlete, this is a side note, um, personal story real quick, but I was at a <laughs> Kentucky Derby party the other night, and there's a girl there who is running across the United States of America. Wow. Her plan is to run 50 miles a day every day, 12 hours on, 12 hours rest. So can yeah, you imagine the chronic, the chronic training load for this woman who plans to run from L.A. to New York? And I hope, I hope she is, she is no, no, developing. No, she's, she's a pro. I she's mean, a, she's been yeah, yeah. doing ultra races. Like she runs 100-mile races like it's no biggie. Yeah, that's you know? that's impressive. Yeah, I take I, I take my hat off to her. That's that's very impressive. It's it's amazing. Yeah, like she's done Leadville and all this these really hard kind of ultra marathons and things like that. But as you were talking about, like you said, for a perhaps a marathoner or a, a triathlete, their sort of chronic training period or chronic load period may have to be a, a lot longer in duration. You know, so this girl running across yeah. the country, she may have six months of preparation. Because you yeah. want to make sure that, the, that, like you said, the soft tissues can withstand a 50-mile run every single day for well, that's right. a couple yeah. of months. For, I mean, it's, it's insane, right? It's crazy. Uh, well, I mean, I think I mean, it's, it's awesome. But, like, wow, talk, about, talk yeah. about the training needed for that. So can you imagine doing something, or even any of these ultras, and giving yourself, like, three weeks to train? Like people would think you would, yeah. you were, you would most likely have tissue breakdown, right? So <laughs> yeah, well, look, for, for a four-week chronic load period, you know, I could, I could almost guarantee would not be enough for, yeah. for that particular person. Yeah. But um, the thing to keep in mind too is that um, high high chronic loads are are all relative to where you've been. So if you if that person gives themselves a, a four-week lead-in time. To, to run across America, then um, I can guarantee 50 miles a day is going to be 
um, way too much mm -hmm. and it's going to be very high relative to where they've been. Mm -hmm. But if, if she's given herself enough time to develop the chronic loads, um, then 50 miles a day is, could be quite normal for her. Yeah. It, yeah. It's all relative to her starting point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think it's, I'm so glad you brought that up because it kind of sparked into me. And I think it's, it's important when you're training with these different athletes that it's not a cookie cutter type of training load, whether that training load be this high chronic load or a high acute load or what have you, that it really has to be individualized. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's, a, it's probably a little hard, you know, to, to say, well, what's, you know, if you ask me, what's, what's your recipe? What's mm -hmm. your recipe for for working with an athlete? And and the reality is, um, it's it's a little hard to verbalise. Um, some some athletes, you know, I'll work with a certain way, and and certainly um, with the collision sport athletes, I work with over here. I, I work with them in a different manner than say the the ones where um, that don't have collisions in their game. That that predominantly have high speed running as as their their most demanding activities mm -hmm. or I'll work with those sports differently from a from an individual sport athlete so so each each sport has their own uh, their own little nuances I guess and, and part of part of being able to work with them is actually learning those nuances as well sure sure and then so you know we're sort of talking chronic loads what about acute load training so I think what a lot of more like real world people see, so those of us not working with these high level athletes is, I think we see a lot of high acute loading injuries. You know, so you have summers coming, people are getting ready for tennis and, and they haven't done anything in months and they go out and they hit with a pro for two hours at, at a very high, a high intensity, which I'm sure you've seen a lot in your career. And I think a lot of people see that um, in a real-world setting. So can you explain kind of the, I guess, first of all, the, the, the importance and the difference between those acute and chronic training, and is there a ratio that people should kind of be shooting for? Again, yeah. it's a question, you know, because it's yeah, individualized. Yeah, look, it, is, it is individual. It, um the acute the acute load is can be anything from from one session up to say one week and we typically equate acute load to to more of a the fatigue associated with training whereas chronic load is is um, typically um, developed over a longer period of time and we and we um, we equate that to fitness and we, we basically look at, at performance, physical performance being equal to fitness minus fatigue. So when your fitness is high, when your chronic load is high and your fatigue is low, so your acute load is low, then in theory you should perform really well. But if you flip that on its head and you've done no training over, say, a four-week period or, or in our um, ultra-marathoner, in her example, if she's done no training over the last six months and then decides that she's going to go out and do 50 miles a day, um, then what we'll find is is that in that acute loading period, her fatigue is going to be very high relative to, to what she's been prepared for. Um, in, in terms of the, the ratio, um, we've, 
we've started using the acute chronic workload ratio, which is basically the size of the acute workload in relation to the chronic workload, or what you've done this week compared to what you've been prepared for over a longer period of time. Um, and our, our ratio in terms of um, in terms of acute chronic ratio in relation to injury risk is, is around about 1.5. Anything above 1.5, we start to see a, a spike in injury risk. But when we keep players within within a 0.8 to 1.3 range, um, they, they, the injury risk tends to be quite low. So um, in, the, in the paper that's sort of designated as the sweet spot, so to speak, the quote-unquote sweet spot. So then when, when do you get into that, okay, this, is, this could be a dangerous zone or a dangerous part for this competitor? Um, it, if, you, if you spike, if your acute loads are low, then that, that's a problem. Um, because what we've also found is that that high chronic loads actually protect against injury, which is which is probably the the thing that um, is probably been underemphasised mm-hmm. from that training injury prevention paradox paper. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's that's as important a message to come out of that paper as as the sweet spot is that if you can get your players to to high chronic workloads and actually get them there safely, it actually protects you against injury. And that's that's the real paradox because a lot of people believe that high training loads are a problem. Um, high high training loads are a problem if if you get there too quickly and if you if you spike your way, if you spike the loads on the way to getting to high high chronic loads. So that's that's where the acute chronic workload ratio comes in handy is that if you can keep Keep that ratio uh, within within safe increases. So up to about 1.3 is where we've found with a few different sports now, um, and there may be that that some athletes handle a lot more than 1.3. That they can just you can throw a lot of load at them and, and they never seem to break. And then there's other athletes that will will break down at, at a ratio of 1.1. So you still have to manage your players on an individual basis. But on a on a group level, um, what we've found is that if you can keep it um, within that range of a, up to about one point three, um, the risk of injury is is quite low. So it's again, it's it's not that high loads are the problem. It's it's how you get to the high loads that it, that's the real issue. Yeah, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And and I think sometimes um, might people be a little afraid to be training too hard in a training period because say, oh, if someone gets injured before XYZ match, then then that's a problem. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of have, are, are, do you think there's a little bit of kid gloves applied yeah, sometimes when, when maybe they're, it, that's not the way to do it? Uh, look, it, in, in my mind, I'm, I'm very clear that it's not the way to do it um, because uh, injuries injuries can happen in sport that that are out of our control, mm-hmm. um, and and injuries can happen due to reasons, a lot of other reasons other than just workloads. So by by wrapping our players in cotton wool or, or treating them with kid gloves, um, what we actually do is um, is one we actually we set them up to fail when when we put them out. In, into competition. One is they, they can't perform those really critical components of match play that actually win you or lose you the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing is 
by being unable to perform those really high intensity components of match play, we actually set them up to break as well. So by by wrapping them in cotton wool, thinking that we're actually preventing injuries or reducing their risk of injury, we inadvertently increase their risk of injury. Um, the other thing too is that uh, there's some really good examples of your of your top line players getting injured, um, uh, bouncing their baby on their knee or walking up and down steps. Um, now, if if you haven't trained hard enough and that player gets injured, then then the next player in line, who is no is there's no chance they're going to be as skillful as the player that they're replacing. But you want to make sure that you've given them every possible chance. Of succeeding when they go into that role so um, and, and one of the ways that you can do that is making sure that they're physically prepared they may not be as skillful mm-hmm. but at least at least you can give them um, the physical preparation or as much physical preparation as possible so that they they have the best chance of succeeding when they go into that role and if they haven't worked hard enough then again what we do is is set them up to fail sure and and you know what I realize if we can quickly define load so I think when people think of load, they always think, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, of wh- how much weights they can lift or leg press. But a load can be um, running, I'm, I'm assuming, running duration, time on the field, drills, like anything could be. Can, so how do you define load just so that people don't think we're just talking about lifting weights here? Because I, mm, I don't think yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good point uh, because um, load load has different meanings to different people, and and I've I've got some really good examples of how um, you know conversations have been mixed up in sport because you know, we've just had a a miscommunication because we thought we were talking about the same thing being load, but load to to one person can mean a totally different thing to another. Um, yeah, load doesn't have to be the weight that you lift. It doesn't have to be the, the number of sprints that you do. For, for me, um, load relates to um, any, any measure of work that is, that is relevant to a particular sport. So, for example, if we look at baseball, um, baseball pitchers aren't going to do a lot of high-speed running. Um, they may not lift a lot of weights but um, in terms of load. But their load comes through throwing the ball, through pitching the ball, um, and we can we can get a a pretty good understanding of of pitching load or load on our pitches through um, pitch counts in games. But one of the things that that isn't quantified particularly well um, is the between game load, so the, the pitching and the throwing that occurs by those players in between games. So, I mean, I, off the top of my head, I don't know how much pitching they, they do, but unless you're looking at all the, the, the long toss and the pitches and the bullpen sessions, then at best you're only probably quantifying half of the load that those, that those players are under. Yeah, no, that makes perfect. And, you know, look at um, – and you know what else I think is another way – uh, they now have those sensors that you can kind of put around the elbow that actually kind of gives you a better idea of the velocity at which the arm is moving, the angle on the elbow, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which is really pretty cool. Um, and it like yeah, corresponds well, look, to like an app, right? 
It's pretty neat. We um, everyone's aware of. Um, they, they, I know in the states they call them wearables. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we we have GPS units that players can wear um, in between their their shoulder blades that that measure how far you run, how fast you run. But what most people don't understand or, or aren't aware of is that GPS is only part of what's actually in that technology. There's some other sensors that are that are much more sensitive. They're they're much more reliable than than what GPS gives us and. What those sensors sensors allow us to do is actually measure sport specific movements. So, um, for example, we've we've actually done some stuff with baseball pitching where you can actually count the number of pitches thrown um, from these these units that that players wear on their you know on their shoulder blades. So yeah, they can yeah. they're, they're so they're 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 non obtrusive. They're they're non invasive. Um, yeah, versus having uh, to sit there with that little clicker. Yeah, exactly. You know, like so like years ago, you'd have to sit there and click, 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 <laughs> click. I mean, God. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it allows you to, in theory, um, the player can just go about their session. They could actually download it themselves mm-hmm. if they wanted to, but typically teams have staff to do yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Um, and it, it does account on all the pitches that you throw, all the all the – every time you throw a ball, it will count it for you so that you actually get a um, – and in time, you'll be able to measure the intensity of those throws mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, that's because I often wonder, um, it, I don't, and I don't know if the technology is there, you would know better than, than I would, but if they're throwing a fastball versus a curve versus, you know, because each one kind of does have a little bit of a different movement to it, you know? Yeah, well, and, and at this stage, it's, cool. <laughs> yeah, at this stage it's, it's probably not, not that advanced, but, yeah. you know, I guess it's a matter of um, taking baby steps at yeah. the moment. That those activities aren't quantified at all, really. Right. Um, so, you know, it's probably um, first can we can we count those activities, mm-hmm. and we think we can. And then the next thing is, well, can we can we measure the intensity, and then can we actually differentiate the type of throws or the different types of pitches? Yeah. So, there's there's definitely. Um, yeah, it's in, it's an interesting space. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about the different types of loads: acute versus chronic, internal, external. What a load is, how all that can play into the training, and perhaps uh, injuries within uh, within athletes. But um, you said before we went live, we were sort of talking about this great article that you had sent over from the Mentalist. And there, I just want to, let's see, talk about one part, uh, and it's, this is from a coach from the Ipswich, am I saying, I'm saying that right, right? Yeah, that's right, Ipswich Jets, Shane uh, Walker, and he said, um, talking about you, quote, the players get the physical and mental capability to compete strongly in frenetic periods of play and understand that when they are in a four-minute, quote-unquote, arm wrestle, and you can talk about that if, uh, in a second, um, uh, in a game, they know it will probably only has to go another four minutes to go. So we're talking about you're getting them physically ready for these games, but there's a mental component as well. And, and I think that goes with, with every athlete, professional, right down to your high school athletes. So... How do you address that mental component, um, and and is it addressed during 
your evaluation and and training with these with these players and coaches and you know the staff yeah look the the the, the important thing for me is that I don't think you can actually um, dissociate the physical the physical side of training from the mental side of training every time that you you step out on the pitch to to train someone physically you're actually training the brain um, so you know I often say we're not actually training athletes to look good in the mirror we're actually training them to to um, you know physical training is is as much a, a skill as as kicking a ball or making a tackle or, or making a shot um, so it's it's about um, teaching players teaching players that um, th there's going to be moments within that training session where they can they can go one of two ways they can either give in to themselves or they can dig in a little bit deeper and actually um, find a way to win the session and the important thing to, to keep in mind with with winning a session is um, we can't even we can't even athletes can't even think about um, winning a competition so winning games on a regular basis until they first learn how to win a session on a regular basis so so winning those games and those those tight moments in games comes back to how often they've learned or how often they've um, learned to win the session and and uh, the more often we can put players in those situations where where they have to have to choose one of two two ways they either dig in or they give in um, and and they learn to, to to fight their way out of that that little bit of a dark hole that they're in um, the more often or the more likely it's going to be a um, a familiar place when they actually have to go there in competition that they go well I've been here before I know what this feelings like um, I don't have to panic I can work my way through this so I can come out the other side of it um, so in, in terms of you know part of it is explaining to um, explaining to players you know what giving them an appreciation of what they're feeling you know, for for a lot of for a lot of players there, um, who haven't been in that in that um, situation before, um, they they're still learning how to train. So when they when they when you take them to a dark place like that in training, they feel like they're going to die. Mm -hmm. um, and and part of it is is actually um, educating them on on that feeling that it's that it's a normal feeling that it's just their their legs. Um, giving some feedback to the brain, or their heart and lungs giving some feedback to the brain, and and just reminding them that muscles can't think, that the brain's in control and it's it's regulating their performance. It can override um, those negative feelings that they have, um, and it's and it's not something that happens in one session either. You know, a big part of it is uh, developing developing trust with your athletes. Um, you know, if I if I if I treat um, mm. my men like um, like commodities or like cattle, then it's that's not the way that I'm going to um, develop trust with them. Um, they they need to know that that I've got their best interests at heart. They need to know that um, I'm looking out for them and looking to keep them injury free by making them as fit as possible and 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 looking to make sure that they can. 
um, compete as hard as possible. And, and part of that is making them work really hard. But they know at the end of it that, it's, that I'm doing it. Um, I'm not asking them to do anything that, that, is, um, that is going to put them at risk. I'm actually, I'm actually asking them to do it because it's actually going to prepare them better and actually keep them injury free. Um, but a, a big part of that comes with, with developing relationships with, with your athletes as well and finding out what, what makes each of them tick on an individual basis. Yeah, and, and by your explanations and your education, I think it's, it sort of allows them to trust their own bodies and to be able to say, you know, I can get through this tough training period and look, I, I can I woke up the next day and I felt okay. You know, and so I think you're gaining that confidence or the athlete is gaining the confidence in their body to be able to push it and and then of course the brain being able to say, Look, we push it and everything's okay. You know, it's kind of what we do with our pain patients, right? You say, oh, you know, yeah, it, it may not feel kind of just a little bit of pain, but look, you did it and it's okay. It's almost like graded exposure type of, of, uh, of training, if you will, right? Laura yeah, Mosley yeah. would yep. be proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, it's, um, you know, a big, a big part of training for these, these younger athletes, a lot of them a lot of them are still learning how to train. Mm -hmm. and I, I was I was pretty lucky that that I learned how to train you know, um, at a, a pretty young age, and um, you know a, a lot of um, a lot of the things that that I've been able to do you know in my life that have nothing to do with with training and nothing nothing to do with sport. I can actually tie tie back to the moment where I learned how to train and. Um, you know, I keep I keep sort of going back to it, but a big a big part of our role as as sports scientists or strength and conditioning staff or, or physiotherapists is or coaches is actually helping helping our athletes find that moment where they can go one of two ways, and the more often we help them find that moment, the more likely it is that it's it's going to become a memory, um, and it becomes a habit. It becomes second nature to them, so that I, I know I know what this feeling's like. I've been here before. It's nothing to panic about. I, I know that if I control my breathing, um, I control my thinking. I can actually work through this. Um, so that, and that that takes time. It's a it's a skill that they have to learn. Yeah, and I was actually going to say, boy, we're kind of running uh, running on to the end of the podcast. Anything you'd like to say to kind of wrap it up? And I think you beat me to the punch because I think that's a perfect way to kind of wrap things up. That was really great. Um, the role as coaches, uh, coaches, therapists, you know, anybody working with this athlete. So thank you for beating me to the punch on that. You got, <laughs> you got it in there before I even asked. Um, but before we, before we uh, sign off here, um, where can people find more information about you and if they have any questions? I don't know if you want to open it up. You, I don't know if you'll be inundated with questions or not, which I'm sure you already are the way it is, but where can people find more information about you? Um, they can, they can um, go to my website at, at gabbardperformance.com and there's a, 
uh, an email section there where they can send send any emails through to me there. Um, I'm, I'm actually very, very slow at getting back to emails, but I do get back to them. So if I don't get back within a minute, um, don't panic. I will get back to you. Um, and then, you know, obviously they can they can follow follow updates um, at um, my, on my Twitter mm-hmm. Twitter handle at, at Tim Gabbett. Yep. Um, we we tend to put um, updates on, yeah, on the different stuff. workshops and, and papers and whatever else. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great. So if you're not following Tim on Twitter, you should because there's a lot of uh, great information and also a lot of. Um, you know, if you just wanted to kind of follow your interaction with other people when you're having these Twitter conversations, um, it's well worth the learning experience. So I highly recommend you follow him on Twitter. Um, so uh, again, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, this was great, and I just really thank you for your time. Yeah, uh, pleasure, Karen. It's um, it's always good to talk to someone yeah. about this stuff. So thanks very much for having me on. My pleasure. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. <laughs>